this past May, Rylan Whittington, she was the recipient of the sixth annual Harvey Milk Awards. Now, as you may know, Harvey Milk was the first openly gay man to um, hold public office in the state of California. He was voted into office, and about 11 months into his term, he was assassinated. Uh, there are a number of books and movies about him. But little six-year-old Ryland and his parents, Jeff and Hillary, were honored because they were honored for embracing their son's true gender identity. You see, Ryland was born a girl. Shortly after she was born, the story goes that the parents discovered that she had a severe hearing impairment. And they were very brokenhearted about that, but uh, she was able to have cochlear implants that enabled her to be able to communicate. The parents explained that one of the first things that little Ryland ever said was, I am a boy. In spite of the pink bedroom and all the girly clothes, the child was constantly gravitating toward the masculine. The parents ignored it. They thought it was just a tomboy phase. And then they read the statistics that said that 41% of transgenders commit suicide. And so they were very determined that their child would not be a statistic. So at age five, they cut the girl's hair, they bought her a whole new boy wardrobe, they changed the decor in the bedroom, and began using male pronouns to refer to him. If you go to the, uh, look at the family photo, you are going to see a very attractive husband and wife, a darling six-year-old little boy standing next to his darling baby sister. When uh, this was announced, the internet erupted with praise and encouragement and support for the decision that the parents made. They were considered to be very brave and courageous. In 2011, Kathy Witterick and David Stalker, they're a Toronto couple, they made the news for deciding that they would raise their third child genderless. The couple, their two children, uh, a family friend, and the two midwives are the only ones that know what the gender is. They are not telling anyone. The grandparents do not know. It is the plan that they are going to let that child grow up and decide for itself what gender it will be. Now that was three years ago. The child's name was Storm, and the mother says that someday Storm says, I am a boy, and someday Storm says, I am a girl. Last year, the Massachusetts Department of Education, okay, so we're talking state, we're not talking some little school board. The Massachusetts Department of Education issued an 11-page directive concerning the rights of all transgender students. Now, if you're like me, I needed to have some uh, definitions explained. A transgender is someone that is born or assigned one certain gender or body parts, but they identify with the opposite, okay? It has nothing to do with their sexual preferences. It has to do with what, who they identify with and who they feel like. Okay? Now, according to the new Massachusetts rules, it would allow for all transgender students to use the restroom 
and the locker rooms of the gender they are most comfortable using. The guidelines also dictated that the student was the best one to be able to determine the gender identity of the student, okay? That's code for the parents are not to be involved in this, okay? Under the new policy, a child can practice one gender at home and another gender at school. Now, as you can imagine, parents were very upset because they were concerned that their children might feel uncomfortable having to use the locker room with someone of the other sex. Well, the state recognized that that might be an issue, but quite frankly, it was a price they were willing to pay. And so, in fact, if students are unwilling to accept the transgender in their locker room, they could face disciplinary action. Let me give you an example. You have a sixth grade girl who is having to share the bathroom with an eighth grade boy transgender. If she complains, she has no recourse. If she continues to complain, she can actually be subject to discipline for not affirming the student's gender identity choice. State of Massachusetts. Okay, year 2000, this is way back, an article in the Atlantic Monthly was entitled, it's kind of a long title, but it's, Are Fathers Necessary? A paternal contribution may not be as essential as we think. And then the article went on to expound that there's nothing objectively essential about a dad's contribution. Okay, now, what does any of this have to do with anything? Why, why am I starting out this morning with these, with these articles? Well, because they beg the question, does gender matter? Does gender matter? Is gender associated with your identity? Is it something that you should be letting your children choose for themselves? Is it something that can be dispensed of? Is it... And, and once we decide on gender, the question then follows that who gets to define it? Who gets to decide what it means to be a woman? Who gets to decide what it means to be a man? Who makes that decision? Society? Tradition? And then we can ask ourselves, how does gender affect our relationship? How does it affect our marriage relationship in particular, or your parenting? How does it affect your Christianity? Well, in the next uh, seven weeks, we are going to be attempting to address some of those things because we are going to be discussing the topic of womanhood, biblical womanhood. And as we look at biblical womanhood, we're also going to have to take a look at biblical manhood as well. Now, um, I, taught, I read this book uh, about a year ago, and I taught some of the concepts to the students, the, student, the girl students. Uh, last year, and I just began to notice throughout the course of the year that I was always referring or drawing from the truth and, and the message from the book, almost daily. And so I, I think that even though some of this might be review, I think you're going to find that it's very relevant. Also, one of the things that I frequently encounter is women wanting to take uh, courses that have to do with identity. We want to understand our identity better. Well, I cannot imagine a better course than this for addressing that as well. Now, with this Bible study, we are going to be talking about biblical womanhood. And that's an interesting term because a lot of people are using it. You have female pastors that use it. You have 
evangelical feminists that use it. You have your modern-day bloggers that use it. Then you have your old-fashioned male pastors that use it. A lot of people are using the term, but they're not, they're not defining it the same way. So that's going to be the goal. We want to get into the Word of God and see how the Word of God defines womanhood. And then we want to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in this and correct our thinking. I was listening to a message by Susan Hunt, who I highly recommend if you ever have a chance to read her books or listen to her. She's excellent. <clears throat> she was explaining about how she had a woman that had been very active in her women's ministry that had to move. And, and moving meant having to find a new pastor. And she relayed how they went and did some searching. They found a church that they loved. The pastor in the pulpit was strong. He was a good preacher. He was solid. He, he, he preached truth every week. But as she got to know, got involved, and she got to know the women, she came back and said, the preaching is strong, but the women, they act like feminists. They think and they act like feminists. Somewhere there was a disconnect between what was coming from the pulpit and how the women were acting and behaving in the church. There is a very real possibility that as we go through this book, we may find ourselves in a very similar situation. We may find ourselves that we are not aligning up with what the Bible has to say about womanhood, but are leaning more towards what the world has to say. And if that is the case, we have got to be ready to be corrected in our thinking and the way we behave. Okay, now, having said that, much of this morning, we are going to spend on going over some basic Theology. We're not going to get into a lot of application today. That is coming. But today we want to lay down some groundwork. John Piper is famous for saying that wimpy women make for wimpy theology. Oh, let me get that backwards. Wimpy theology makes for wimpy women. And nobody likes wimpy women. So um, we want to spend some time on the theology. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah 43? Isaiah 43. We're going to look at verse 6. Elizabeth Elliot once said, in order to learn what it means to be a woman, I'm actually going to leave this here. In order to learn what it means to be a woman, we must start with the one who made her. I couldn't agree more. Um, if God created us, then as the creator of the universe, he knows best. Okay, So, if we want to understand womanhood, if we want to understand gender, we do not want to go to the culture. We do not want to go to our feelings. We do not want to go even to tradition. So we, so we want to go to God's Word. Now, um, these are some passages that we're going to read that were from your homework. And as I read them, I want you to ask yourself, we want to keep in the back of our minds the question, does gender matter? And then if so, why? Okay, here we go. Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Okay, turn now with me to Revelation 4.11. Revelation Four, verse 11 it says, 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Okay, those are pretty similar messages. <clears throat> both of them are telling, both of them, <clears throat> excuse me, are telling us that God is the creator. Now that's very basic theology, I know, but we want to make it our first point. So, number one on your papers. Being the creation of God determines everything for us as women. God's the creator. God's the definer. Okay? Everything that we do and are must be rooted in God because he's the one that made us in the first place. Now, a little side note here. If you have someone that does not see God as their creator, they are, they're not going to agree with anything that we talk about. They're not going to, they're going to have a hard time submitting to the authority of God and the authority of God's standards. Okay, so for that reason, we need to start there. Now, if you agree on the fact that God created us, then the natural next question is why? Why did he create us? All right? Um, we are not going to understand the Bible's teaching on womanhood and manhood if we don't understand God's purpose in creating us. Okay? If we are to think and behave correctly as women, then we need to understand God's original and highest intention for us. All right? So that's where we're going. And um, we see that in these verses as well. So point number two. We have been, well, we were created for God's glory. We were created for God's glory. Have you ever wondered why am I here? Why was I born? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying that, you were created for God's glory. First Corinthians tells us we have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. We exist to glorify God. I want to read you something. Uh, by Paul Washer, he said, he's, he's a preacher, and he says this, I quote, <clears throat> I can assure you that no matter what you achieve in this life, none of it will satisfy you. You were made for higher things. You were made for God, and only a pursuit after God will fill you, end quote. You were made for higher things. Recently, Victoria Osteen, went viral for some comments that she made in her church where she is a co-pastor. You probably have already heard of them. She said that when we obey God, or when we go to church to worship, we don't really do it for God, we do it for ourselves. And she said, I quote, God takes pleasure when we're happy. Okay, now she and her husband, they sell a lot of books that promote this theology. This isn't anything new for them. They, they preach this in some form or another every week in their church. And they have a membership of over 40,000 people. The idea that God exists for the happiness of man is very appealing. We like hearing that. But the Bible teaches that God is self-sufficient. And that he exists for his glory. That he created us for his glory. And he, and he, we exist for his glory. Okay? He takes pleasure in his own glory. Now make no mistake about it. 
he does not need us to be glorious. He is glorious regardless. So what does all of this mean then? What does it mean when we say we exist for his glory or that we're to glorify God or that we're to bring God glory? Those are kind of churchy words and expressions. So let's try to define some of those. Um, the author Mary Cassian uh, gives a nice, concise um, explanation. So point number three, that's what it is. Number three, glorifying God is putting God on display. It is shining the spotlight on God. Dana Graff, she put it this way. She said that when we glorify God, we illuminate him. We make him visible. He can be seen in us and through us. Ladies, that's why we're here. That's why you've been made. Uh, Holly Eliff put it this way. She said, the purpose of our existence is making God more known than he would have been apart from our life. Okay, in other words, your neighbors, your family, your children, they have a better idea of what God is like from watching your life and listening to you speak. Okay? Because you're continually putting the spotlight on God. I want to give you an example. I was reading a book uh, by Kate McCord. And it, it's a book about the five years that she spent in war-torn Afghanistan, just working among the people and, and getting to know them. Uh, it's a very eye-opening, uh, it's a riveting book. But uh, she talks about getting to know the people and learning their ways. And she tells the story of going to have a meal with a Muslim family that she had become friends with. And um, at one point, the father asked her, out of the blue, what do you think will happen to you when you die? And, and she said, I believe that I will wake up in heaven. What do you believe? And, he, and one of the men in the room went on to explain to her that he believed that when he, woke, that when he died, he would have to cross a long bridge. It was the width of a hair, and it was razor sharp. And he would have to pass over that. He would have to have enough good works, enough credit. His good works would have to outweigh his bad works in order for him to be able to cross, at which point he would be welcomed into paradise. If he didn't have enough good works, he would um, be shredded and fall into the, the abyss and be judged by Allah. She asked him, how do you know if you have enough good works? And they all said, we don't know. So um, they, they have to wait and see. To which she began to explain, you, you are right, I believe God will judge. But God knows that I will never have enough works. And he loves us. And he wants us to be in heaven. So he has sent the honorable Jesus, who has left heaven to pay for our sin, and he will cover my sin. And she said, he has given me faith to believe that Jesus, who was perfect, will cover my sin. And she said, I, would ne I will never be good enough. I'm not that good. And the family protested. They said, no, you are good. See, they had been watching her life. They could see she was a good person. She was a righteous person. And yet she, she waved them off and said, no. I can do good things, but God can see into the corners of my heart. And he knows I will never be good enough. So he has sent the honorable Jesus. And when I trust him, he will cover my sins so that God, when he sees me, he will see Jesus 
Jesus is hiding my sin. She said, it is as like Jesus will carry me to God. And the family sat and they listened to everything that she was saying and they were thinking on what she said. And finally the father spoke up and said to her, you have a beautiful God. You see, she had been putting the spotlight on God. She had been illuminating God. The people sitting in that room all had a more clear picture of what God was like because they'd been watching her life and they'd been listening to her words. And you see, that's what you were made for. You were made for higher things. Now, what is the connection between that, that purpose that we have, and your womanhood, and your gender. Can you, can we, put God on display without making gender an issue? Can Christianity be androgynous or gender fluid? How important is our womanhood to our most basic purpose, which is to glorify God and to put the spotlight on God? Well, to answer that, we are going to turn to, guess where we're going? Genesis. Yes, of course. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Going to the beginning. We have studied this before. It's become an old friend, hasn't it? All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, we'll stop there. We have a tendency to kind of read over that passage very quickly because it's familiar to us. Now, if you did your homework, you, you had a chance to see that this is like the superfoods of Bible verses. There is just so much rich. It addresses so many different things. And um, for starters, here's one of the first things that we want to see. Number four, God intentionally, intentionally created two distinct genders. Moses, the writer of Genesis, is showing us that God is being very intentional. He created mankind, and it's going to exist in two distinct genders. Now, Elizabeth Elliot tells a story. I've shared this before. But she tells the story about how in recent years, when she would go and speak on womanhood, she would often go to college campuses, Christian college campuses and seminaries. And she would um, talk to them about womanhood, and she said that she would always have to start with this truth, that God created two distinct genders, that men and women are different. And her point was that years ago, she didn't have to take the time to teach that. That was something that people instinctively understood. She said that she went to work among a Stone Age people in South America, and she didn't have to take the time to teach them either. They also understood 
that men and women are different. Nowadays, that is not the case. People do not understand that, and there's a reason for it. If um, you will remember, we talked about this, but the battle cry of the second wave of feminism was, do you remember? We are the same as men. They said we are equal. They said we are the same. And, uh, and they're, uh, they have been incredibly effective in spreading that ideology. In fact, one of the latest new things is something, you may have heard of this, it's called gender fluidity. Okay, that's when a person does not lock into one gender. They're gender fluid. That means they change back and forth from gender. They may want to be a man this week and a woman next week. Okay, so that's, that's kind of what we've come to. But the Word of God is making a point to tell us, and let's be real clear about this, that God purposely created two distinct genders, and at the risk of being painfully obvious, it's by your anatomy. Okay, two distinct genders, according to your anatomy. All right, now, um, I, want, I want to share a little something here. I have just come to have a real passion for this, and just the importance of gender distinctiveness. And I was very anxious to teach it. And then some things happened over the summer. I began to watch the news. And it seemed like just when I thought things could not get any more depressing or worrisome, the next day's news, I mean, it did. And so I'm, I'm studying about womanhood all the while I'm looking at uh, the current events that make it seem like the world's falling apart. And, and so I found myself questioning, is, is this what we need to be studying? I mean, in, in light of all the world's problems, what, what, what does it matter about womanhood? In light of, uh, under the circumstances, what difference does it make that God has created male and female? Well, um, I, I, will, uh, share, I will spare you the uh, details of the wrestling match that, that uh, followed with that. But I, I want to sh share that I became completely convinced that this was exactly what we needed to study. You see, God created two distinct genders. To be, God created us to be different from one another. That means that you and your husband are going to do things differently. That means that you and your husband are going to think things differently. That means that you are going to raise your sons to grow up to be men. That means you're going to raise your daughters to grow up to be women. So that when the difficulties come, when the disease strikes, when the tragedies hit, then we will have men that act like men and women to act like men. You see, the people of God, we need to be prepared for the hardships. And we need to be prepared to be able to minister to a lost and hurting and confused world. So we are going to need godly men that act like men and godly women that act like women. Okay, why? Why? Why, why the distinction? What's the purpose of having two distinct genders? Was it for procreation? Was it for companionship? Well, I, that could be part of it. But what we want to see is what is emphasized in verse 27. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's break that down a little bit. Number five on your paper. God created us in his image, designed to be his image bearers. All right, now we've just learned that we were created to glorify God, and, and this is just going to help us understand that a little bit. And so let's start by understanding what we mean by the word image. The book had a very good explanation for this. But let's say to you that I, I whip out my cell phone and I show it to you, and you say, hey, hey, are those your kids? Now, we all know those aren't my kids. That's an image of my kids. But, you know, you can learn a lot by looking at that image. You could get an idea of what they look like, maybe what they do. You would probably be able to recognize them if they walked in the room based on the image. But, it, it's, you know, that's not the real thing. That's the image. All right? And, and that's the picture here. We are told in this verse that we have been created in the image of God. And we are in his likeness. Now, that is not said of animals. It's the only thing it's said of is humans. It's not said of animals or plants or birds or any of that. Humans are the only thing that are described as being made in the image of God. Now, you likely already knew that. You likely have already heard that all, all your lives. But what we want to see, we want to see something different here. Uh, we want to see that of all the things that God could have used to describe his image, he uses gender. Right? Verse 27 says, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When discussing image, he does not talk about our um, language skills. He does not talk about our mental intellectual capabilities. Of all things, he points to gender. So next thing, verse, or question number six. God created two distinct genders to image who he is. Gender displays God. Gender puts God on display. In particular, it displays his diversity. Okay? Now, as um, human beings, we're created in the image of God. <clears throat> they talked about this in the book. That would include our ability to think. We make moral choices. We have the capacity for creativity and truth and justice and wisdom. We have the capacity for a spiritual relationship and fellowship with God. We have the capacity to be governing his creation as his representatives. All of those things are a part of being created in the image of God. But don't miss this. When God points out what his image is like, what does he point to? He points to male and female. And we don't want to miss that. All right, that brings us to our next point. Number seven, as women, we distinctly bear God's image through our femininity. Okay, from the beginning, it's been designed that man and woman would work together to display the image of God. We will do it through our femininity. Men will do it through their masculinity. Okay, you know what that means? That means that we want to be women, and we want to support our men in being men. All right? If there were only generic, androgynous people, then the glory of God would be diminished in the world. Okay? And we want to remember that two genders reflect his diversity. Okay, now with that in mind, I want to give you a good definition for the meaning of true womanhood. And this comes from John Piper. I have it on your sheet. He says, It is the distinctive calling of God to display the glory of his son in ways that would not be displayed if there were no womanhood. 
Now, um, in the next few weeks, we're going to get specific about that. We're going to get very practical. You know, what does womanhood entail? What does it look like? That's coming. For today, I just want us to get a taste of how important gender distinctiveness is. Okay? Next point, and it's a long one. <clears throat> Male and female were created in relationship to display something about the divine relationship that exists within the triune God. Not only was our gender distinctiveness pointing to the diversity of God, but it also points to the unity. Okay? In verse 26, the authors pointed this out. They said, watch for all those plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Remember the man and woman were to be in a complementary relationship. And so what we see here is that image is giving us a greater picture of the relationship that exists between the Godhead. Okay? Moving on. Number nine. Men and women equally bear the image of God. Equally. If you did your homework, you would have seen they had a, a whole list of those things. They called them the 12 equality indicators. They were on page 33. They just listed them. Most of them came right out of this passage, so you don't even have to leave Genesis to, um, to see it. <clears throat> David Platt points out, we were created with equal dignity and equal value before God and equal dignity and equal value with each other. Okay? Now, if anyone suggests to you that men and women are not equal, they do not know the word of God. Okay? Now, you have cultures, some cultures, where women are oppressed, women are abused. That takes place in some countries. Uh, then you come to a culture like ours, which as of late, there has been uh, much in the news about domestic abuse, so it takes place here as well. We also, in, in our culture, we see the opposite of it, with male bashing and such things. Um, you can't watch a TV show that's not devoted to, to bashing men. So, um, so the author had an interesting comment. She said that to attack the equality of the genders, of one gender, is to attack the very image of God. And she went on to say this, listen, she said, one-upmanship, manipulations, words that belittle, demean, or abusive behaviors are all attacks on the image of God. Let me ask you, do you do any of those things? Do you make jokes about men? Do you belittle men? I, I have, I've caught myself. I'm having to reevaluate some of the things that I say without thinking anything else. Okay, next point. Number 10, an attack on the equality of one gender is an attack on the very image of God. They had a quote in the book by Wayne Grudem, and I, I liked it. Here's what he said. He said, every time we look at each other and talk to each other as men and women, we should remember that the person we are talking to is a creature of God who is more like God than anything else in the earth. And men and women share the status equally. John Piper had some similar thoughts to add to the mix. He said that even in a world where sin abounds, men and women are still made in the image of God. And you don't kill them and you don't treat them like mice and mosquitoes. You treat them with dignity and value. Okay, now that's a very important thing to remember as we're about to take on a course like this. 
because we're going to be talking about things that stand counterculture. And if you pursue the things in this book, you are going to be a salmon swimming upstream. You're going against the grain. And some people are going to find that offensive. And you may find that offensive. But how do you treat them? Well, you're going to treat them as if they are people that are more like God than anything else in the world. How do you treat those people as you're swimming upstream? You're going to treat them with value and dignity because they've been made in the image of God. Okay. Now, all of this leads to uh, one last question, and that is, have we messed it up? Have we messed up the image of God? Have we? Yes, that would be a yes. <laughs> yes, we have. We've made a colossal mess of it. In fact, the book put it this way. She said, we have marred it beyond recognition, especially the relationship between male and female. As John Piper explains, he says that marred condition, it begs for the rest of the story. It begs for completion. It begs for restoration. It begs for the gospel. And then we go on into the New Testament and we read about the relationship that was there, that was uh, pictured for us between the husband and the wife. How it was a picture, it was a story for us about Christ and the church, his bride. And we see that long before the foundation of the earth, man, husband and wife was to be something that pointed us to the gospel. All right, now here's the thing. If we are to understand our womanhood, we must understand it in the context of the gospel. You see, if we take our womanhood and we bring it over here and we isolate it from the gospel, then, then we, end up, we end up just reducing your womanhood to stereotypes and lists and behaviors and roles and things like that. None of the things that we talk about in the weeks to come are going to make any sense unless we understand them within the context of the gospel. Okay. Having said that, our last point is number 11. Womanhood exists to display God's masterpiece of redemption. Let me pray. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray this out. And then um, I do have an announcement to make. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you that you give us purpose. Father, I pray that, that each one of us will be just so mindful of us and that you, you will help us and equip us to just put you on display, to illuminate you, to our, to whether it be for a husband or a neighbor or our children. We pray that we'll just be putting the spotlight on you. And as we try to understand how to do that as women, I pray that you'll just guide and direct us. Help us to be godly women that display your beauty. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, we pray.